Thank you, Tim, for the prayer of supplication. And I, again, want to express to you, each of you my deep appreciation for your willingness to come and sit under the preaching of the Word of God. And knowing that uh, God's Word tells us in Isaiah 55, 11, that His Word doesn't return to Him void or empty uh, or fruitless, but it accomplishes His will. And it, uh, it performs that which He sent it out for. And so... If you have receptive hearts, I know God will bear fruit in your life as a result of what you will hear and read and, and, and meditate upon this morning. I will be continuing in the Gospel of Luke and we'll be looking this morning in chapter 5 beginning in verse 33. As you're finding your way there or maybe you already have parked out there in chapter 5 of Luke's Gospel. I'll share this with you. I was looking through some old papers I had and came across a clipping from the Winston-Salem Journal that was dated actually 10 years ago. I don't know why I kept it, but uh, I'm glad I did because it was an article that was written about this trend that the, the reporter had noticed or had uh, studied and observed among people calling themselves Christians and including evangelicals. And, and 10 years ago, there's a movement among these, these uh, particular people that... Um, that they were beginning to take an interest in uh, and beginning to incorporate into their faith life or tradition some of the segments or facets of some other religions, particularly some of the Eastern religions, and including New Age uh, um, philosophies. And, and so the, the author was talking about how the uh, contemporary Christians felt like this was somewhat trendy to, to pick and choose elements of other religions that would kind of enhance and, and, and make their own faith tradition uh, more meaningful, if you will, whether it be through meditation or some of the other practices of these other religions. And, you know, that, that was 10 years ago. And, and given the state of our nation and the, the, the direction of our culture, I can only imagine that that, that process is probably still going on in, in uh, Christendom today. That, that process has a term. It's called syncretism. And the dictionary defines syncretism as the combination of different forms of belief or practice. And you know, Bible-believing Christians and churches today are increasingly under pressure in our pluralistic and very secular society to accommodate unbiblical ideologies and practices. And, and to refuse to do so Usually you win for, you, for yourself the label of being narrow-minded or being rigid or being legalistic or being a hardliner. And, and so, uh, you know, some people say, well, you're just a, a hardline, narrow-minded fundamentalist if you're not willing to be open-minded and accommodate some of these other concepts. So, you know, this is a trend that we're up against. Hear this warning from Dr. John MacArthur on this very subject. And uh, I'll share this quote. He says, Any form of syncretism is unacceptable. The Christian gospel cannot be mixed with any man-made religion or humanistic philosophy. Unquote. And this is not a new phenomenon amongst God's people. As you study through the Old Testament, you understand that as the children, children of Israel, God's people settled into the land known as the promised land, Canaan, they were surrounded by pagans, pagan nations, and there was constant pressure upon them to infiltrate their belief system with some of the pagan practices. 
And you know as well as I do, looking at the history of the Bible, that when they did, they found themselves, they found themselves at odd with their God. So much so that there are times that God would chastise them and they became so syncretistic in their faith, if you will, that they became more like their neighbors than they did their founding fathers like Abraham or Moses. And for that, God severely chastised the nation of Israel. Heaven forbid that we would find ourselves drifting in that direction as the body of Christ today. It was not a new thing back in the Old Testament. It was not a new issue in the life and ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As we pick up here in chapter 5, you'll find that Jesus and his disciples are coming under attack by some of the religious critics of his day. And so beginning there in verse 33, read along with me in verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 33. Then they, and I want to pause there for just a second to qualify that they, more than likely is implying, going back to verse 30, the hounding critics of Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes. In just the previous segment there at, at a banquet that was sponsored by Matthew, a recent convert, to Christianity, a, a recent follower of Jesus. And in this banquet where Jesus and his disciples were mingling and fellowshipping with, with tax collectors and other sinners, they, they were being confronted by the followers of the Pharisees and the scribes. And, and they were being confronted. Why, why in the world are you eating with such sinners like this? And they're unrelenting on their attack on our Savior and his early disciples. As we see in verse 33, it says, Then they, and we will assume here that it in, at least when they talked about they, they're talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, but, and that's why it's good to look at the parallel Gospels, because if you were to go back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, in verse 19, you, or chapter 9, verse 14, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, you'll find that Matthew enlightens us to see that it's not just the, the scribes and the Pharisees who are attacking Jesus at this point and his disciples, but it's actually the disciples of John the Baptist. Now I know you're thinking, how in the world could they be in this, this partnership, if you will, with, with Pharisees and the scribes in being antagonistic towards the Lord. In reading commentary, uh, commentary observations about that particular issue, it becomes apparent John is in prison. John the Baptist is in prison. And with his absence from the scene, he doesn't have direct control and direction of his disciples. And at this time, this may be a group of people who follow the teachings of John the Baptist but have not bought into the true identity of who Jesus really is. These may be individuals these who, who call themselves disciples of John who were not there that day at the Jordan River when Jesus came to be baptized by John the Baptist. They didn't see the Spirit of God descend from heaven like a dove and light upon the shoulders of the Son of God. They didn't hear with their ears the booming divine voice of God Almighty when he said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. It's very likely they weren't even there that day. Or possibly they weren't even there that day recaptured in John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 29, when, Jesus, when John the Baptist looked up and saw Jesus approaching and he, and he declared and exclaimed in, in hearing of his, his followers, he says, Behold the Son of God 
who takes away the sins of the world, they'd probably be never heard that. So with their own theological confusion, they've, they drifted back into the legalism of, of, of Judaism and their, their bed partners, if you will, with the ones who were the very targets of some of the most antagonistic comments made by John the Baptist when he just railed the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes as being snakes. And yet now his followers are joining in on criticizing Jesus and his disciples. So with that kind of explanation, we'll move forward in verse 33. Then they said to him, why do you, why did the disciples of John, speaking of John the Baptist, fast often and make prayers? And likewise those of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. So, so you immediately see in the context of this confrontation, you see there is a, a pressure, an attack upon Jesus by, and his disciples by these religious critics, and I emphasize religious, because it's all they're steeped in, are rituals and empty superficial religi religiosity, which in turn betrays their ignorance of who Jesus truly was. You see, when they approach Jesus and they're criticizing him, and questioning the practice of his disciples, it, it betrays the fact that they don't even really know him. They've locked him into the group of all the other circulating rabbis who have disciples who are following after him, and he's just one of the run-of-the-mill rabbis out there with disciples following him, and they're wanting to know, why is it that you and your group aren't marching to the step and the cadence of the religious culture of today. Why, why are you not doing like we're doing? We're all practicing regular fast. We're all practicing regular public prayers. And, and here you are, going back to the feast that we talked about earlier in chapter 5. Here you and your disciples are feasting while we're fasting. What's, what's the deal? And behind this ignorance... It's a syndrome that the Apostle Paul addresses very clearly in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4 that plagues the minds and the hearts of many people around us today and it's called spiritual blindness. You wonder sometimes how it is that people that should know better don't seem to know better. People that have heard the gospel, people who have been in church and yet they still don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. People who are living out there in a secular world as if there was no God whatsoever. Folks, understand what Paul says in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians in verse 4. He says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Whose minds the God, little g, speaking of the devil, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Jesus was dealing with a group of spiritually blind people. Oh, they had religion. They were big on their rituals. They appeared to be people that were, quote, right with God according to the works that they were doing. But let me tell you something. They were absolutely blind. A good number of you, and one day I pray all of us will be engaged in this campaign we call Who's Your One? We're not asking you to go out there and round up thousands of people in, in a parking lot and try to preach the gospel to all of them, unless God leads you to do that. Hallelujah. Let me know. I want to be there. 
We're asking you by, by the leadership of the Spirit of God that you would single out one person that you know right now does not know Jesus Christ who's walking in darkness and pray for them and ask God to allow you to cultivate a relationship with that individual or individuals that you might have by the privilege of the leading of the Spirit of God the opportunity to share the truth of the gospel with them. You won't save them. Get that clear in your mind, brothers and sisters. I won't save anybody. You won't save anybody. But God can use you by the power of His Spirit and the power of His Word. And you can be used by God to heal the spiritual blindness that plagues them right now. And the Spirit of God has the power to lift the blindness, the shields off of their eyes to be able to see the wonderful truth of the light of the gospel and see who Jesus Christ really is. And be drawn to Him by the Spirit of God and given faith to put their trust in Jesus Christ and suddenly taken and snatched from the clutches of the devil and transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and made to be glorious, eternal children of God. But that's God's work. We're His instruments. So they, they were plagued by spiritual blindness that caused them to be ignorant of who Jesus was. But also it reveals something else about them, the critics. It revealed their false notions about righteousness. Oh, they were big on righteousness. But the problem is they missed the whole boat about how it is that people come to be righteous. The scripture Paul tells us in Romans 3.10, they're none righteous. <laughs> Not one! Not one person ever born on the face of the earth save the Son of God on their own is righteous. And yet they had the idea that they could commit, they could engage in certain rituals and certain works and sacrifices and follow the, 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 the law of Judaism and all the rabbinical teachings and they can make themselves to be righteous as if they didn't need God. And so when they approach Jesus and they're, they're criticizing his disciples for not fasting like they fast and praying like they pray, you know, it's interesting, if you were to go back into Matthew's Gospel again, parallel in the, the Gospels in chapter 6, Jesus ad addresses that. He confronts them in all three areas, by the way. Almsgiving, and in praying, and in fasting. If you'll just indulge me just to take you back there for just a moment in chapter 6 of, of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew nails this. This is Jesus addressing the Pharisees, the scribes, when he says, Take heed there in chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward for your from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as a hypocrite, speaking of the Pharisees and scribes, as they do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I said you, they have their reward. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees love to do public demonstrations of their religion. So as to present publicly that they were really righteous people. And all they were seeking was the praise of people. And Jesus called their hand in chapter 6 of Matthew. He called their hand not only when it came to almsgiving. He said, don't go out in public. Do it in private. 
Don't let your, your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You don't, have to, you don't need the praise of other people. Do it in privacy so that your God, that, that God your Father sees it. You'll get your reward from God then. Same thing in praying. Don't go out in the street like the, like the Pharisees and the scribes and, 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 and do this glorious long oration of prayer and, and announce it on the street corner so that everybody can see what a wonderful prayer warrior you are. He says all they're seeking is the, as the attention and the praise of men and they'll get their reward. Not from God, they'll get it from men. Same thing when it came to fasting. Jesus said there in Matthew's Gospel chapter 6 beginning in verse 16. He says, even when you fast... Don't do like the hypocrites. Mess your hair all up. Have your face all looking drawn and, and suck in your gut and go around and say, I'm fasting. I'm fasting. Oh, hallelujah. I'm fasting. Listen, Jesus says, listen, wash your face. Clean your, put your hair in position. You brush your hair. Get cleaned up and fast in private. So you see there in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus shot holes in the facade of their religiosity claiming to be able to be righteous by works. And Jesus says, they'll get no reward from God the Father. They'll get their reward here on earth. Because it was all shallow. But then, as we go back to Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, where Jesus is addressing this group of critics, if you will, the Lord sheds divine light on his disciples' actions. He's having to explain to these critics, these spiritually blind antagonists, how it is that his disciples are so different from the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the scribes and Pharisees. And he ingeniously uses the imagery of a wedding feast as he explains the, their, their perceived radical actions, if you will. Begin reading, reading with me in verse 34. And he said to them, can, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? The bridal party of the, the, the groomsmen? Folks, I don't know about you, but you know, I've been to quite a few weddings in my time and officiated a few. But typically weddings are times of celebration and joy and rejoicing. How, how out of place and unfitting would it be to go to a wedding and the, and the organist is playing some funeral dirge and everybody's weeping and, and, and morbid and crying. You expect that at a funeral maybe. Well, I don't even expect that at a life celebration of a believer. I'm going to tell you what, you can have a hallelujah moment when you go to celebrate the home going of a child of God. Amen? <laughs> but Jesus says, you can't expect the, the, the friends of the bridegroom to be fasting while the bridegroom is still here. It's a time for feasting. And he's, he goes on to point out that the motivation of his disciples... Their motivation was relational. Whereas the motivation of the disciples of the scribes and the Pharisees and even John the Baptist wayward disciples was all religion. They were doing everything they did for pure religious purposes. It was works based. And the Lord was saying in contrast he says my disciples 
They do what they do relationally. They're doing what they do be out of a personal relationship that they have with God. Emmanuel. They see it. They recognize it. They're walking with God. How dare you think that they're going to sit around and fast when the Son of God is in their very presence? How out of place that would be. Like mourning and fasting at a wedding. Empty religious rituals are inappropriate for this joyous kingdom moment that we find ourselves in. Oh, listen, Jesus gives us a clue. There won't always be times of joyful celebration and feasting for my followers. There will come a time for fasting. Look carefully with me at verse 35. This will be the first clue Jesus gives us in the Gospel of Luke of his impending death. In verse 35, Jesus says, But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. And that term, in the context of its original language, suggests someone forcefully and suddenly being removed. He says, Oh, look, the day is coming. The day is coming. When the bridegroom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And those early disciples, when they witnessed the, the horrible, senseless arrest and torture and crucifixion of their leader and their friend and their Lord, were thrown into to, to deep depression and mourning. They, no doubt they fasted. How could you eat when your Savior has been snatched away from you in such a brutal and unjust way? Oh, Jesus said, look, let them feast. Let them feast. Because the day will come when they will have to fast. And so Jesus is helping his critics even to understand the motivation was relational, not religious. Our motivation must always be to please our Master. Everything these disciples were doing, if they were doing their job, and after Jesus' bodily resurrection into heaven, and ascension into heaven, the motivation of every follower of Jesus Christ must be because we love Him. Do you all get that? You remember in John 14, 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, He is the one who loves me. You scream from the depths of your soul to the heart of Jesus, Lord, I love you. Every time you read the Scriptures and you meditate upon the principles of Christ and you determine to obey them, like that old hymn, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And that obedience is driven by a deep love for Jesus. You don't come to church because you've got to fulfill some religious checklist. Then the Christian growth group, check. Then the worship, check. Then the care group, check. Participated in ministers, check. Read my Bible. No, no. You should do all of those things, surely. But it should be driven by a motivation of love for the Master. Amen? 
And ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I submit to you this morning from the depths of my heart, from the, from, from, from the depths of my soul, that is our ultimate purpose for walking on the surface of this earth. Every day, every week, every year that you and I are blessed to live in this world, we have one sole driving purpose, and that is to love Jesus and to demonstrate that wonderful love for him by being obedient to him. Not because we're trying to please other people, as the Pharisees and scribes and even John's disciples were doing. I love how Paul put it in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, For do I now persuade God or men? Or do I please men? He says, For if I please men, I'm no longer a bondservant of Christ. Paul says, Don't make any mistake about the fact I'm not a man pleaser. How do we know that? Look at the times the man was arrested. Look at the times that he was beaten, unjustified. Look at the times that he was tortured, stoned. Look at his, his impending death, being beheaded. That's not a very popular figure publicly, folks. That's a man who was determined that he was not going to please men, but he was going to invest his very life in pleasing God. What an example for you and me. That should be the motivation of our heart. Biblical Christians should never yield to cultural pressure to adapt to man's ideas and philosophies. I don't care how popular they are. Christian discipleship is infinitely more than engaging in weekly rituals. It's infinitely more than rituals and religion. Discipleship as a child of God. Christian discipleship. I like the way Dr. Avery Willis has gone on to be with the Lord. A great servant of the Lord. Former missionary with the Southern Baptist Convention. And the author of a popular discipling tool called Master Life. Many or quite a few of our members have gone through that with me. But quite simply he said Christian discipleship is a process of developing a lifelong obedient personal relationship with Jesus Christ in which Christ transforms our character into Christ-likeness. And He changes our values into kingdom values. And He involves us in His mission in our home and in our church and in the world. It's a relationship. It's a daily, obedient, personal relationship. Every morning you and I get up. I like how old Junior Hill, that Texas evangelist used to put it. He says, hey listen, when it comes to me and Jesus, every morning I get up and I salute heaven and says, Master Jesus or Colonel Jesus, this is a private junior reporting for duty. Listen, every morning we get up and say, Lord, my master, I'm reporting for duty. What are your commands for today? You see, this is foreign to the Jews. This is very foreign to the legalistic, ritualistic, religion-steeped Pharisees and scribes and now even some of John's wayward disciples. Because, you see, they had bought into this notion that had been inbred into them as a nation for generations. What a, what a far departure from the the original law of Moses. 
They kept wrapping it like an oyster wraps around a, a one grain of sand. You know that, that mother pearl juice that goes around it and round it and round it and round it and that's until it becomes a pearl. You know, the, the Pharisees, I think uh, the, the religious leaders of the Jews were irritated by the, the, by the essence of the true law of God. So they kept wrapping it around with rabbinical teachings and rabbinical teachings until they had hundreds of laws. They were burdensome and totally unrealistic and had nothing to do. That's why Jesus said, look, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill what I was given. The gospel is incompatible with man's work-based religion. Coming back to syncretism. Whether that be Judaism... Catholicism, Mormonism, Islam, Hinduism, New Age. The gospel, hear this, the gospel, the true biblical gospel is absolutely incompatible with man's made religion. And Jesus teaches that. Verse 36. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old, old one. Otherwise the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into an old wineskin. Or else the new wine will burst the wineskin and it be spilled and the wineskin be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskin and both are preserved. Using two popular illustrations, Jesus says, when it comes to patching clothes, I remember this, you know, growing up in a family of, on a farm with 11 children, you know, we were wearing patches before they were cool. I tell folks, you know, we were, we were throwing away breeches that people go pay $100 for nowadays, you know, with the holes in the knee and, you know, the hind end hanging out and all that stuff. And my, my, my mother would just take clothes like that and cut patches and we'd patch it, you know, when you wore a hole in your knee. How many of y'all ever worn patched clothes? You, you don't mind confessing? Yeah, yeah. You know what? They fit fine. But she didn't take new material and patch an old garment with because if she had done that and put it through the wash, that new material would shrink and pull the stitches loose. Same thing with wineskin. skin. That time, you know, people stored their wine, you know, in, in, wine, in uh, animal skins, which would expand with the fermentation process. So you've got new skins and put that new wine in and when it fermented, it would begin to expand. If you made the mistake of taking an old wine skin that had gone through the process of stretching and everything, and you put new wine into it, that wine began to stretch, that old skin is not going to stretch. Kind of like some old Baptist, but I'm just kidding. But anyway, not pliable and, you know, expand. And, and so that old wine skin would burst, and there goes your wine, there goes your wine skin, you know. See what Jesus is saying there, using those two popular illustrations. He said, how foolish to try to go and patch your clothes with new garments and, and it tears, you know, the first time you wash it. Or why, why put that, that brand new wine in old wine skins? It just, it's not compatible. And it's helping those people to understand, using that imagery, that the gospel, the gospel is not Judaism. The gospel is not Buddhism. It's not Hinduism. It's not New Ageism. It's not Mormonism. Don't go trying to patch the gospel 
to any of these religions. Don't try to add and to mix or take away from. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is dynamic and powerful and it will never adapt to man-made religions. The gospel message stands alone on its own integritism, integrity. And yet you see efforts even in popular Christian movements out there today. Whether it be through seeker-friendly churches trying to incorporate some of the cultural ideas and try to patch it into Christianity as if to make it more palatable to, to the secular society out there, folks, that won't work. The gospel will stand on its own. It doesn't need man's help. It doesn't need these false prophets out there promoting the prosperity gospel as if, oh yeah, we need the gospel, but we need to add all of these other principles that help people to have good health and to be prosperous financially and, and as if the gospel was not good enough. <laughs> Come on! When are they going to open their eyes and realize what the Apostle Paul says? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God. It is the power of salvation. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile who believe. And Jesus is railing this group of critics who are trying to suggest that his disciples somehow need to modify their lifestyle so that they would conform with the religion of their day. And Jesus goes on as I close in verse 39 and, and points out and warns of the tragedy of what is, I believe he's describing as religious addiction. You know it's sad to see people so hooked on their religion and their rituals that they put all their confidence in their actions and in their works and their rituals. Whether that be bowing towards Mecca or fumbling through a rosary bead or sitting in a confession booth or, you know, going through Mass or, or whatever the case may be. Listen, and they think somehow they're winning favor with God. And they're hooked on it, folks. Like drug addicts are hooked on drugs. Look what Jesus said in verse 39. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new. For he says, oh, the old is better. They don't bother with the new. They've gotten so used to the old. I don't want anything new. And I realize some of us as we get older, we get set in our ways. I remember when I first discovered I was diabetic and then, you know, I realized with my wife's insistence and guidance that I needed to switch from regular Mountain Dew to diet Mountain Dew. Now she says no Mountain Dew. But anyway, see, it's always a gradual process. But anyway, I remember having the old wine. Oh, oh, Mountain Dew. <laughs> so sweet, laden with sugar. My taste buds just jumped up and down with joy. And I tasted that first draw of diet Mountain Dew and I about spit it out of my mouth. I said, huh, can you enjoy something? I paid for that? <laughs> But I adjusted over time. And now it's hard for me to even taste a regular Mountain Dew. But Jesus is saying, look, don't, don't expect people to just be jumping up and down with joy and enthusiastic when it comes to departing from their religious rituals and their old sense of security that, that is based on man's man-made religion. Don't expect them to be so excited to 
to go to the new. Uh-uh. Because they have grown accustomed to the rituals. They feel secure with these old traditions. No matter how unbiblical they are, they've gotten like old wine. They're, you offer them something new and more refreshing, and they say, no, 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 no. I kind of like this old, stale, gaggy uh, old wine. It's, I'm used, used to it. I remember Dr. J.D. Greer at the Southern Baptist Convention. He was talking about when he was on the mission field, I believe in Malaysia, one of the countries over in the Far East, he was saying that he developed a close relationship with a Muslim friend. They really bonded, and they, he looked for every opportunity he could possibly share the gospel with this Muslim friend. And they just really were, you know, were good friends and socialized, and he tried to use that relationship over and over and over. And he said con continually, this, this devout Muslim who was a good friend would, would just respond every time. He says, you know, oh, no, 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 brother uh, or friend, uh, J.D. No, 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 no. He says, uh, uh, you see, I have always been a Muslim. And you have always been a Christian. He says, I, I was born a Muslim and, and I will die a Muslim and you will die a Christian. No, I, he says, you, you, you know, I, I cannot you know, take that step. Why? Because he was addicted by the traditions of a, died, a, a dead religion. And so that's the, that's the challenge that we have. We are going out there with the, with the authentic, life-given truth of the gospel and we find people who are spiritually blinded, religiously intoxicated, emotionally enthralled with their religion and they reject the true Christ-centered, life-given message of the gospel. That's why we need to pray for them. That's why we need to pray that God's Spirit will do the work that only He can do to open the blinded eyes of those who are walking in spiritual darkness so that when we approach them with the truth of the gospel, the life-given gospel of Jesus Christ, the Lord might open their hearts and their minds to be receptive. Do it joyfully, folks. Do it with gratitude. Because do you understand, there was a moment in my life and in your life, you were spiritually blinded, I was spiritually blinded, I was walking in darkness, and I was destined for hell. But praise God, through His amazing grace, and the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and the faith He gave me, my eyes were opened. And so were yours. Think of the people that God has waiting on you and me out there, who are waiting on us to be faithful to bring the good news of the gospel so that their eyes may be open to see the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.